Thank you to everyone who supports this show and all the shows in the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. If you are not already, and if you can afford it during this time period, you can become a Major Spoilers member by signing up at patreon.com slash major spoilers. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Ashley. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, we set sail with Tintin and Captain Haddock on the trail of Red Rockham's treasure. We journey to a galaxy far, far away, not once, but twice, and cover our jugulars in the vicinity of Riverdale, or one of the Riverdales anyway. There's danger, there's excitement, there's romance and swearing, and that's just a pre-show discussion for the patrons. We know it doesn't matter because what you like to see is what we'd love to give you and give it one, two, three, but it may come three, two, one, two, or jump from nine to five, and when you see the end in sight, the beginning may arrive, so get ready, because the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to issue 872 of the Major Spoilers Podcast. If you're a numerologist, that's an eight. I think that's a good thing, right? I don't know. Eight, seven, two. No, but I mean, you run the numbers down and it all adds up to an eight. Two. Well, you eight and seven, to put them together, that's 15 plus two is 17. You add the seven to the one, you get an eight. Yep. That's two zeros. You add them together, you get zero. Well, fours and threes are both lucky. So with your sevens and your eights, you're probably in good, good shape. Yeah, there we go. All right. Now that we've got that out of the way, hey everybody, welcome to our <laughs> hey, little show. Everybody. We are uh, here, Doctor <laughs> Matt. <laughs> what did you call me? Oh, well, because it's got to be one syllable, right? Yeah. yeah. No, hey, don't hey. ever call me that. I will never forgive you, and we are married now, and so <laughs> it's sad. Sorry. Uh, what did I see? Some oh, uh, that's another pre-show discussion we'll have next time about my wife's trashy TV ha- habits. But if you do want to hear us talk about uh, my son's uh, screamings in the middle of the night. Uh, Doctor Who and the Goof Troop. You do want to check out the pre-show over there Doctor at patreon.com the slash Troop, the way, major spoilers. Underrated episodes of the yeah. Tom Baker here. Yeah, there you go. Uh, let's get to some news. Why don't we? <laughs> we're we're going to run through some news, hopefully keep you entertained this week as you continue to stay at home, and hopefully we'll be back to normal soon. But first thing on the list, no new comics until August? Question mark. Disney plans a live-action anthropomorphic Robin Hood and AMC filing for bankruptcy? Oh, no. Let's spin that Wheel of Destiny. Let's see where this lands. Around and around and around it goes. Where it stops. Only we know. Knows. Well, we all know because it's bold right there. Disney plans a live-action anthropomorphic Robin Hood movie. And I put anth- a live-action in quotes. Quotation because, marks. <laughs> yeah, because uh, a lot of people were like, oh, did you see that live-action Lion King? It's like, no, I saw that fully an- uh, CG animated Lion King. Is that what you're talking about? So this would definitely have to be, you know, CGI animals Um, unless, you know, unless they go back to the days where they actually would have live animals and then CGI over their heads. So their mouths are moving. I think think Tiger King pretty much put that to bed for anyone left in the entertainment industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With that Air Bud theory, man. Air Bud where uh, the rules don't say a dog can't play basketball. Right, you just feed it some peanut butter, and then you have somebody speak in a way that, <laughs> okay, hey, Wilbur. But doesn't talk in the movie. <laughs> oh, you're I'm thinking sorry. Of, you're thinking Forgive of, uh, so there were two talking. the Airbud mythos. There were two do- talking donkey shows. There yes. was, um, what was his talking name? Horse. It was Francis the Francis the Talking Mule. Mule, and then there was that yeah. series of movies about the donkey that was playing football, right? Wasn't he a talking donkey as well? 
I think that not. may have been a Francis the Talking Mule movie. Was it? Okay. I For think. some reason, I thought yeah. that they were two separate things. But I know Disney had a thing where it's like, well, the rule book says it doesn't have anything that says a donkey can't be a kicker for the football team. That's okay. Air Bud. You, yeah. No, no. Then they remade it into Air Bud later. But anyway, let's Did get, they, okay. you know, we, you and I, Matthew, have been talking a lot. Why don't we let Rodrigo talk about Disney's live action anthropomorphic Robin Hood? Because if I'm not mistaken, Rodrigo, isn't Robin Hood one of your favorite Disney animated movies? It is. I, I really like the, uh, what, 70-something Robin Hood? Mm-hmm. 73, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so when uh, I believe John Favreau did the uh, the Jungle Book mm-hmm. uh, in live action, meaning it, there was a Mowgli and a bunch of CGI animals, um, they got a bunch of feedback, and a big part of the feedback was... Um, the animals don't look real because they emote. Basically, when they're sad, their mouths droop and their eyes are different. And when they're happy, you know, they smile like a human smiles, which makes them look less realistic. So they took that feedback. And when they when it came around to do the Lion King, they applied it by saying, we want these animals to look realistic. So they should be as bland and emotionless as possible just like real animals. Um, and that went terribly. And now with uh, the live action Robin Hood, it seems to me that this is the way that they should have applied that lesson. Then rather than saying, oh, well, we should stop the protagonists of our movies from emoting. They should have been like, what can we do with this smiling animal technology that's not going to look weird? And the answer is give them human bodies. You know, it's like just make them people with animal heads. Everybody loves that. So instead of making the Lion King, this should have been their next step. Hopefully, they've also internalized some good lessons from the Lion King going into this production as well. I'm just I'm just really curious to see how they're going to do it, because if they're going to make these animals like and I know some people I don't know if you do this with intern Brago, Ashley. But I know mm. some people like to put their cats in little silly hats and put their oh, dogs no, in, not. in in little uh, outfits and make them run around. I, I'm just very curious if they're going to make these animals look as realistic as possible, but have them standing up and emoting like real people. Or if this is going to be something more cartoony, more like what you might see in a in a furry costume or something. They're going to look like those cats from the litter box ads. Oh, I don't know if you've what, seen them. What if they're like the cats from the Cats movie? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Hopefully they will have learned from that, too. I think the thing about the Cats movie was, again, it the was an in removing cat butthole technology? <laughs> no, it was an attempt to try and do what they call the live action, which is not really live action. But I think that you're you're coming to a point where just hey we're going to do it cgi is not the answer you still have to have a solid design and rebel wilson in cats was not necessarily well designed either as a cat or as something that would look awesome on rebel wilson and hopefully you know the characters in robin hood traditionally the robin hood movie i say traditional of a 45 year old animated flick um because that's the kind of person i am but traditionally they wear clothes yeah Robin yeah, wears, wears a hat and he yeah. wears a, a tunic and he wears pants and, yeah. and they uh, fire Maid arrows. Marian has a dress. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, and, they and, have uh, clothes. Sir Hiss. Sir Hiss. Is a that snake? wears a cape. Yeah. 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 I mean, and a little thing I on his head. Like, 
I feel like the the ability to do a realistic animally character wearing clothes and find a middle ground between you know the cartoony Robin Hood fox that we saw and the way too realistic Lion King stuff. I feel like there's a lot of middle ground that they could play with there. In a worst case scenario, two years from now, we could all be going, oh my God, that was terrible. <laughs> Except for Carlos Salas Rocky, he was amazing. Ashley, do you have any thoughts on, on this? Uh, I mean, I think that the Brian Bedford Robin Hood is pretty sacred. I think it's really special and really beautiful. I'm... You know, as with all Disney live action remakes, I'm I'm sitting here asking, who is this for? Why do I care? And the answer remains the shareholders. So, mm. I mean, they've screwed up every animal live action thing they've done so far. I expect nothing different with that. If they cast me in it, it's the greatest thing that ever happened. <laughs> Uh, we can uh, you can follow Ashley at Ashley V Robinson <laughs> uh, producers and and casting agents. She does some great please voice work. Rep, please reach out to Phil Brock at Studio Talent Group. Dear there God knows go. nothing is casting right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just I'm, I am mixed. You know, on the one hand, you ask that question, Ashley, who's this for? Yes, obviously, it's for the shareholders. But it goes back to that bigger thing about why they've been remaking all these movies. And well, it's to because hold on to the IP. Well, yeah, to hold on to the IP, and plus they don't have to pay new writers because all they're yeah. doing is polishing up or reusing the previous script. So, it's... and look, uh, I can and be, they... I can be as rude about it, you know, as I want on this podcast. But the truth is, like everyone here, we all hope it's gonna be great. Yeah. But so far, the odds are not in their favor. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about those is, not only do they not have to do a new script, they don't have to pay royalties to the people who created the Ooh. originals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they're um, dead. Ivanhoe, you know. Yeah, they're dead. Long time ago. What like, if? What if they? <laughs> what if? Now, let me ask you this. What if they used all of the original voices and songs and they just turned the animated movie into the CG movie? I think it depends on what people's contracts look like. But video work, like video game work, is like notoriously not well represented for things like residuals. So it could probably just rip everybody off, including our Lord and Savior, Brian Bedford. Yeah, that would be... I don't be... think they would, though. No, I they probably they... wouldn't. I mean, they did I mean, with they Alan would... Macon and Aladdin. <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like the 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 desire to throw in like a post Malone song or have oh, Harry yeah. Styles do a big, you know, role and I mean all of these I think all of these have featured at least one new song. Yeah, yeah. Right. Since at least since Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. You know, you get Lizzo in there and have her do a, a big number. I'm just saying let's let's just it. take all the voices. You know, take Brian Bedford's voice and just put it right on top of the CG Robin Hood. Eh, I don't think they would do that. I mean, I mean, they they could. I mean, I think that's a, a yard too far, even in mercenary Hollywood terms. I, the thing is, is like half of the thing that sells these movies is the talent that they line mm -hmm, up. Mm -hmm, is the right. stunt casting. Mm -hmm. You know, you got Will Smith as the genie. You got uh, the Lion King was like a star-studded affair. Beyonce was in it. Yeah. You know, John so, Oliver was in. It. Yeah. It had it had something for everybody. Whether your jam is Beyonce or Billy Eichner, it's just Listen, it, it had something for you. I'm, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this right now. Uh huh. If this movie doesn't cast Ashley as a voice, I'm not gonna see it. <laughs> yep. There you go. It's it's that simple. I've thrown down the gauntlet, Disney. Now that you're scrambling and you're worried about your stock <laughs> taking a yep. dump, uh, I have thrown down the gauntlet. You can get my 1999 easily. Per person, yeah. Or 
You can't. It's that simple. Please just and fulfill want, my dream of making me an actual fox. That would be fun. If you right? want my 950, Ashley and Milana should be playing Robin Hood and Little John. And that's that's how it should go. Oh, my gosh. That would be good. I would I would go see that. I, I guess this is one of those wait and see things. But, man, I do not have high hopes. Songs by the Week, Nid. And he uh, can be I just want to. I just want to see if they'll bring back Robin Hood and Little John riding through the forest. Ooh, la, 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 I mean, la, 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 I, I'm, la, la, I would. I would bet on the fact that they're going to have. But all it's going to be Will songs. Smith singing the song. They're going to yeah. remix it. They're going to do like. They're going to have like a new hip kind like of cool dubstep version. version of it. Yeah. If you ever yeah, have, to I mean, they're going to redo them all, and they'll probably they probably will get Eminem. Uh, the thing about Robin Hood is that there's actually only one character who sings mm-hmm. in it there's only like two or three songs um ba- basically there's three songs once like song number one is sung by the rooster mm-hmm. um dana dale song number two is sung by everybody which is that phony king of england song oh, that's and a great song number song. three huh i said that's a great song i forgot about that one it is it's a great song and song number three is the song that is sung is basically love theme from Robin Hood, um, <laughs> which is basically sung by a Celine Dion type voice while Robin Hood and Maid Marian are like holding hands and gazing into each other's eyes. And it's like none of those songs require you to cast someone who can sing. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the one of them is a chorus, so you can just dub their voices over, and as long as they sound right, you just cast. You cast the weekend as the rooster, mm-hmm. and then you you cast someone else. You you basically go to your stable and say, "Who is the next Disney person that John needs DiMaggio. to get something?" Yeah, it's like, uh, <laughs> have we thrown enough bones at Alicia Cara? She's doing this one. Yeah. Um, I do like Alicia Cara, by the way. All right, so good. we get so we get Billie Eilish to do the the songs of the rooster. We get uh-huh. Ashley to pay the 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 play the poor little bunny rabbit who's like, "Mama, uh-huh. I'm so hungry." Man, if you ever nailed my type, I have played many sad animals on stage. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so who get else? Danny Pudi to voice Alan Dale. Okay. Who else? Oh my God. Yeah. Lin Manuel Miranda has to be something in it. Oh yeah, I he's think, really tied I in with Disney right now. Isn't Lin he was yeah. already really in Mary Poppins and Moana. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably do something. There. Who can the rock? I was like, if you want to spread the Hamilton oh, he's... love, get like David. Uh, oh my Diggs. God, Diggs. Yeah. Yeah, uh, if you're putting the rock in, he's got to be um, King John, right? Or um, oh my God, Richard the Lionheart, King Richard. Richard, Richard, King Richard. That's who I'm thinking of. Him, him as yeah. King John is much funnier. <laughs> uh, I mean, it would be right. Uh, that would be cool. Okay, anybody yeah. else that you can cast who's made Marion? It's it's really sad that they cast um, John Oliver as Sazu. I mean, he uh, presumably he did a good job. I did, I haven't I still haven't seen that Lion King, but he'd make a good Sir Hiss too. Yeah, he would. He's incredible. Or um, Ricky Gervais would make a great Sir Hiss. Yeah. Actually, Ricky Gervais would make a really good King John. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because he's a goon. (laughs) That's true. He he does suck. (laughs) But hey, you know. (laughs) In this this reality that uh, that we're composing, everybody has turned into a good guy. Um, so, but who you know, who is uh, Charles who's the Dance sheriff? Is one of the uh, vultures. It's great. Danny Danny oh DeVito is Danny DeVito is the sheriff. The sheriff of Nottingham. Oh my god, that's so funny. I feel like you need uh, it, it. Like okay, so you need a Liam Neeson for that. He's like <laughs> Disney. Yeah, films. but Liam like, Neeson is bad. like canceled after that unfortunate interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
they're just like all over the place with accents. That's okay. Like, oh, yeah. King John is does have an English accent, but like nobody else does. Robin Hood has like your standard Midwestern accent. Well, like who's 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 there's Robin random Hood? guys with like the, the Sheriff of Nottingham has a country accent. <laughs> you know, I guess because he's a sheriff. Well, he's Pat Buttram. Pat Buttram talks like that. He and was he was a, a he was a Disney man who talked like this. He was a yep, Disney yep. staple in so many of those uh, post Walt Disney pre Sleeping Beauty movies. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 All right, listeners, we want you to join in on this conversation. You can talk about all these stories: No Comics Till August, Disney's live action Robin Hood, or the AMC bankruptcy by heading over to our Discord. You can find the Major Spoilers Discord server and join it for free. Right there in the show notes is the link. Uh, or if you are someone who has linked their Patreon account to Discord, you get access to secret channels. In fact, we had a new person sign up the other day and had popped into the Critical Hit Discord uh, uh, channel and was like, hey, can I ask uh, questions about the new unreleased episode yet? And I was like, no, you have to do that in the secret channel. And the person was like, oh, there's the secret channel. I'm going to go in and, and ask my question there. And that spawned, Rodrigo, a huge conversation that lasted two days. Yep. It was it was a fascinating conversation to see different people's perspectives on everything. So you can go check that out over at Discord, uh, the Discord server. I don't know. It's not Discord.com, is it? I don't know how it is. You know, there's a link in the show notes. I don't remember how to get there. It's like this long and involved thing that's... Yeah, just listening. go into the show notes, click on the link. It'll take you to Discord. You can enter the Major Spoilers channel and have lots and lots of fun. All right, let us get to some reviews. Now, Ashley and I were plotting and scheming last week, and we're going to do something a little different this week. Disney Plus has just finished their eighth episode of Star Wars The Clone Wars. And so Ashley and I thought that we would split the two arcs between us and talk about the first arc and the second arc as our reviews this week. So I will start things off with The Clone Wars The Bad Batch. This is David Filoni, who is the uh, producer, I believe, and maybe the director on these episodes. But this one looks at an episode where uh, one of the clone troopers was taken, was, uh, you know, a prisoner of war in a previous episode. And they think that somehow the um, the not the uh, whatever the merchant group is. The, isn't it the tech, the tech syndicate? Yeah, the, the tech syndicate. That's it. Thank you. Ashley knows so much more about Star Wars than I do. Because <laughs> I pulled one thing. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, they think that the Republic is trying to um, that the that they're tapping into this clone troopers memories and feeding all the Republic's maneuvers to the the tech group so that they can defeat the the clone army every time they do it. So Commander Rex and they use this group called Clone Force 99, which is the Bad Batch. It's kind of like, you know, every once in a while you do a clone, you're going to have some of them come out perfect, and you have some of them that are kind of like, eh, a little weird. So you get like the skinny nerd clone trooper, you get the uh, Rambo clone trooper, you get the Arnold Schwarzenegger clone trooper. Just imagine all the 80s action heroes smashed into this group. You've got the, uh, you've got the uh, long-range sniper uh, Clint Eastwood clone trooper in here, and they're going to go and recover their buddy from Admiral Trench, who, oh my gosh, I don't remember ever seeing Admiral Trench before. He's probably been in the shows and I just forgot about him, but he is this half robot, half spider character that's big and fat and gross. And I love every single moment that he's on, on screen. And so they have to go with, um, with Darth Vader 
not Darth Vader. He's not Darth Vader yet. Anakin. They have to go to the uh, to the homeworld and they have to rescue their friend. And it's really cool. It's really kind of interesting because uh, the tech group is really a lot of like it's borderline steampunk. There's a lot of retro futurism design and all their technology. And it looks really, really cool. And of course, then they spend four episodes trying to get to the planet and working with some of the the native uh, groups so that they can defeat some some bad guys so that they can then get to the headquarters. They break into the headquarters. They find their friend who's all hooked up and has been really turned into a monster himself uh, in terms of more robot than man. And then they spend the third episode trying to escape in the fourth episode, turning turning the uh, turning the uh, uh, the force against them, against the bad guys and then going in and decimating the tech group. It's a really interesting episode, more so not from the storyline, which I think was somewhat appropriate, but I really like how we have this group of essentially what would have been rejects still showing that they have a valuable place to serve in the Republic's army, even though we know that coming up very soon that that's going to be all shot to heck. Uh, but it's interesting to see how even people who see themselves outside of the norm can find their place inside this Star Wars universe and provide value uh, to the universe. Uh, it's a it's a very interesting story. I think it has a lot of more action than what Ashley may be talking about. Maybe she has a different version, a different view on the first four than I did on the last four. Uh, but the Bad Batch, I thought, was very interesting. It was a great way to kick off this Clone Wars series uh, because it did kind of pick up where things left off and does require you to know what happened in the previous six seasons uh, to kind of follow along what's going on and why they're going after this guy and what's happening to him and the fact that he's going to be suffering PTSD going forward and his ultimate decision to join the Bad Batch, um, I think uh, played out very, very well as the opening arc for the return of Clone Wars, which we haven't seen in, what, four or five years. This was, I think, fairly well done. I'm going to give it uh, three and a half slices of meatloaf out of five. Um, it was, I think, a good opening arc, but I think the thing that everyone was waiting for was the return of Ahsoka. And we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to find out what Ashley thought about Ahsoka's return in just a little bit. But first, let's do some comic books with uh, comics that are coming out this week. Yes, there are comics coming out this week, everybody. And Matthew, you're going to tell us about Zombie Tramp number 70. I am. And I have to tell you, we've been doing a little show called Dueling Review for the last, I don't know, 750,000 years here at Major Spoilers. Feels like and every it. week, Stephen lists the comics that are coming out each week. And every once in a while, he will be like, Zombie Tramp. And I'm like, is that really a thing? It really is and, a thing. And then I see previews of Zombie Tramp on the site. And I'm like, okay, Stephen is going really, really out of his way to trip me up with this, you know, this, especially, this gag, this Shrek. Especially when so many of them, I have to put the censored bar across the preview pages because apparently there's some nakedness. There is some nakedness. I, uh, last week, accidentally picked up uh, Zombie Tramp number 69. Sorry, I just said that out loud and I realized how that sounds. And anyway, I'm like, oh, that's what that is. So this week, I'm thinking, hey, let's look at Zombie Tramp number 70. And the first thing that I have to tell you is the transition between issues is not clear. Uh, because Zombie Tramp number 69 basically takes place in the mind of, and get this, the new Zombie Tramp, uh, there's a new one. The original Zombie Tramp is apparently de-zombified, I'm not sure. The new girl is a young lady named Angel. And Angel spent all of last issue trapped in her own head, repeatedly dying and reliving terrible moments of her life. And it was actually narratively pretty solid. And it wasn't, you know, 
a story where it was like, hey, this is all about, you know, boobs and jokes and puerile humor. I enjoyed it. It was a book that I was like, hey, I could get I could get into this. I could come back. So this issue opens with her body in the real world and her friends who are trying to take care of her body only to find out that she's been possessed. And they insist on calling it a Diabla throughout the issue. She's been possessed by a Diabla. And I'm like, that's not right. That's just not right. But nonetheless, her body gets into a fight. And yes, um, her body is unclothed. And her friends who are helping her to not be dead are apparently also naked for some reason. I presume that if you go back to issue 68, there's a, a necessary deep plot point that explains why all these young women are topless. But nonetheless, throughout this issue, we are going kind of back and forth between her possessed body fighting her friends and her mind trapped in this weird hellscape story. But it doesn't really pick up where last issue left off because last issue ended with her walking into the mouth of a snake, trying to face her most terrible fears. And all of a sudden this issue, we're like, Oh yeah, she's being torn apart again. She's being killed again. So it's multiple, multiple, multiple deaths, which is horrifying. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that's not a scary thing until you realize that the title of this issue is 69 ways to die. And so, Coming out of Zombie Tramp number 70, I feel like I have a broader picture of the Zombie Tramp uh, mythos, uh, oeuvre, universe, if you will. And I feel like the two issues together balance out into a story that really does successfully take, here's some adventure story tropes, here's some you know horror story kind of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or supernatural type antics, combined with Here's some of, you know, the, the Cinemax After Dark content that, and don't get me wrong, if you like it for that, that is perfectly fine. You are valid in reading whatever you want to read. It's not for me. So when it gets to the stuff where it's like she's having a long and involved discussion while being pneumatically and obviously naked, not really my bag. But the parts of it that work are more successful than the parts of it that don't. And while there are a few moments where I'm just like, that is definitely late teenage humor, I feel like it may be a book aimed at the late teenage market. And I try to think about what, you know, 20-year-old Matthew or 19-year-old Steven might think about this particular I'd be book. like, rotting bodies story. doesn't turn me on, so. Well, the thing is, she's not rotting inside the book. On the cover, you see her being green and slorgy and everything. But inside the book, she is a very healthy, naked woman. Oh, and okay. I'm not sure because I haven't read enough Zombie Tramp to get a full feeling of what type of zombie we're dealing with here. I don't think that this is like um, a, uh, you know, the, the, the Romero-type rotting zombie. So it's like much an iZombie type zombie. Right. One of those undead who is super pretty sometimes and can also be gross. But again, if you can get past moments where you can literally hear in your head, and if you can, you know, really kind of dig into the dramatic parts of this story, I feel like Zombie Tramp number 70 actually does work pretty well. And then you get four pages of nudity where you're just like, mm, maybe that's not my thing. But all in all, three slices of meatloaf, um, which 
honestly, I didn't know what to think about something called Zombie Tramp. Clearly, I'm coming into something that has a very specific sense of humor and a specific sensibility. And I'm kind of surprised how well it all hangs together. So I'm not saying that I'm going to be buying every issue of Zombie Tramp. But I feel like it may be a book that I check in on every once in a while, like maybe Tarot, Witch of the Black Rose, where maybe their kink is not my kink, but it's an okay comic. All right, cool. Well, let's continue with the, uh, with the supernatural horror stuff, Rodrigo, mm-hmm. and let's check in and see what Archie Comics is offering up this week. That's right, Archie Comics this week. That's right. Archie Comics still cranking out the Archie content. Uh, it was between this and a, uh, like, 47,000-page Archie Digest. So I decided to go uh, with Vampironica, colon, New Blood, number four. This is the last issue of this arc in which uh, Veronica Lodge, in this universe, is a vampire. Some of the other denizens of Riverdale are also supernatural critters, mostly uh, vampires. And... um, Veronica has found out that her ancestor um, was a very powerful vampire. In fact, a vampire that is so powerful that he must feed on other vampires. Like, humans are just too weak. He has to feed on other vampires um, and has other powers uh, dealing with other vampires. And she... And and that's, that's what he's after. And in the process of learning that, she also learns some dark truths about her family and about herself. And it leads us to a final showdown. Um, uh, the artist by Audrey Mock. Uh, it's really good. I'm, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, obviously the, the, the Archie's gang is iconic, right? There's like, you see like that blonde, and that ponytail, and it's like, that's Betty, and that's Archie, and that's Veronica, but there's more to it than that. Obviously, they have personalities. Those personalities come across really well with the art. There's also a lot of action, um, as there is, like, a full-on, uh, I believe this will be the second time we're invoking uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer type, you know, rumble with some vampires type fight. There's actually kind of, a, there's actually a couple of those. Um and uh, it 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 carries the story really well. Um, altogether, uh, it really feels like it's leading to this ultimate conclusion, but it kind of leads leaves itself open to continue the story, uh, and in doing so, kind of deflates the conclusion a little bit. Um, so you know, the, it it just really depends what you were looking. Uh, forward to from this issue obviously um, all of these archie supernatural comics are doing really well so there's no reason to stop you know there's no reason to put a put a pin on on at the end of this so um they they really do leave it open to continue these uh spooky riverdale adventures Uh, i'm gonna give it three and a half slices of meatloaf uh, it was an enjoyable read, an above-average read, and uh, does make me interested to see if, uh, what's going to happen next volume. All right, very cool. All right, let us conclude our Star Wars The Clone Wars talk with Ashley's look at Gone with a Trace, the four-issue arc that re- sees the return of uh, Ahsoka Tano, or however you, you say see, her last name. It's funny because she meets a girl named Trace, 
And that's the quality that you're looking at with this type of storytelling. The, the thing that I always tell people when they think about watching Clone Wars particularly, and also when they think about uh, watching Star Wars Rebels is you have to get past kind of the silliness in the beginning because they think they're making a kid's show and then they realize that the audience whether that's children or adults, is more sophisticated than they initially give them credit for. And they get to do this really interesting thing. And Anakin becomes this actual character who you care about. And then like they introduce Ahsoka and she's so amazing. And she's one of the greatest characters that Star Wars has ever made. And um, I really loved the arc that Steven talked about. And for me, uh, this second arc is reductive and feels like a return to treating the audience as though it is less sophisticated. Oh, uh, part of my bias. I, yeah, I find I that interesting like because <laughs> I like what this comes to. <laughs> I actually liked this arc better than the arc that I reviewed. I did not. Uh, we started the one with the one that you reviewed, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is kick-ass. This is like exactly what I want." And we saw a lot of the clones, you know, um, and sort of their later stories and rebels, and it was so cool to return to them all together. And it was, it was like, it's really kind of for Star Wars, the clones. It's kind of hardcore. Mm-hmm. And then this stuff. I'm also not a fan of the next season of television or the next installment in a movie franchise picking up five seconds after the last one ended. I like for there to be time and wait because we have spent time weighing the actions of the media that we just took in. But Ahsoka's storyline takes place literally five seconds after she has fled the Jedi Temple on Coruscant, spoiler, for five years ago. Um, The Netflix season of the show it started out really promising and really interesting because Ahsoka goes down onto the lower levels of Coruscant. Coruscant, the city planet, is something I'm super interested in. And if you know, which I only knew because Jason Inman leaned over and told me this, if you know that there was supposed to be a video game dealing with the lower mm-hmm. levels of Coruscant, yeah, you can and kind a TV of tell. Show too. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tell that they scrapped a bunch of those ideas when the project didn't happen and just kind of slapped them here and said, this will be good enough. Uh, Ahsoka, instead of leaving the planet where everyone she knows who's incredibly force sensitive, who is looking for her, uh, exists, she uh, meets a girl, a mechanic girl named Trace who hates the Jedi. They fight. They come to no conclusion. And then they, she says, OK, I'll help you find your sister. That'll be fine. So they spend the next couple episodes finding her sister Rafa, kind of figuring out what's going on with her. And because Rafa and Trace are from these lower levels, they work really hard. They're in debt to a number of sort of evil syndicates that are specific to Coruscant that have a little bit of tie-in to some of the stuff that Steven was talking about initially. Uh, But they don't like the Jedi because they kind of see the Jedi as like the quote-unquote coastal liberal elite as much as there can be in a planet that's an entire city and that they're oblivious to some of the things that are going on. Well, And and also... Also, because of the Jedi, their parents were killed because of Jedi's, you know, kind of, eh, we're whatever. We don't care about anyone else but ourselves and the battle that we're fighting. And they're trying in this really heavy handed way to explain to the viewer why the Jedi fall, because, you know, the Jedi were ignorant of what we know is the impending Order 66. They're sort of ignorant in this way of what is happening to these characters. And so Ahsoka is forced to hide her identity and her past and everything about being a Jedi until such a time in the final episode as it serves her and these two girls who they have shoved down our throat for three episodes uh, 
to sort of serve their goal. And I'm trying to be a little more vague because the, the final episode just came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the, the, the bad batch, those episodes are like a month old at this point. I really like, I thought this was childish. I thought it was reductive. I thought these two characters were super annoying. I was waiting for them to leave. I was bummed that Ahsoka got stuck with them. And for how far we see Ahsoka come in rebels, I really feel like this is a humongous step backward. And there's, there's not that many episodes left this season, so I was I was pretty disappointed in it. Um, I think it's I think it's cute. I appreciate that they are trying to give us more female characters because Ahsoka very much embodies that. I appreciate that they are giving us young female characters of color. We're overcoming adversity. Um, there's a lot of things that, like, if you write it down on a piece of paper, I liked about it. But watching these episodes, I was like, I just. I don't I don't really care. And I feel like this was a waste of time. And we could have done a lot with Ahsoka serving the overall narrative of who she is as a character and also serving the show. And just for me, these episodes didn't do it. However, one of the coolest things about this season is that the animation has come forward in leaps and bounds. And like now they got Disney money. Mm-hmm. So I mean, even if I didn't necessarily care for this tonally or if I didn't particularly care for what it did for the story, they're beautiful episodes to look at. Like Ahsoka looks incredible. Trace and Rafa have really cool designs. The hair is adorable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's some obvious Spider-Verse influence in the designs of the sisters, and I'm totally here for that. And seeing more of Coruscant and what is unique about that world, I thought was really, really interesting. Yeah, and then the drug syndicate that they're dealing with I like their designs uh, quite a bit. Uh, is really cool. Um, mm-hmm. But here's the thing. You're right, Ashley. We're almost done with this season, this quote-unquote final season of The Clone Wars. There's yeah, right. only four. <laughs> there's only four episodes left. And between these two, and I know you and I are kind of uh, flipped on which one we like better, yeah. I am wondering, you know, what was the point now that I look at these, mm-hmm. these two arcs? I'm like, this is it? I was expecting something big. You got to go out with a with a bang and these first eight episodes just haven't given it to me. And none of them focus on the central characters of the series, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if this is, let's wrap up all the side character stuff. Um, uh, and so that we can transition to whatever's next between clone wars and rebels. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm just like, I am watching these as they come out, but I'm not watching them on the day that they come out. I'm watching them on the weekend that they come out. But Mm -hmm. this is to me, me, this to me is not, I must rush out and see it. Unlike the Mandalorian, which was, oh, this thing drops at midnight. I'm going to stay up an extra half hour or 45 minutes or whatever it is to watch this new episode. I mean, my favorite thing that's happened so far this season, uh, and this is not a spoiler, so calm down, um, is, (laughs) is when Anakin... Yes. talking to Padme yes. and Obi-Wan makes it very clear that he knows exactly what's going on. I thought that was like an excellent reveal. Yeah. And it tells you a lot about those characters, but also feels correct for them. I was like, yeah, it's more of this. And then we didn't do more. of Yeah, that. It, it was a really great scene. Uh, yeah. I liked it a lot. I did like that a lot. So here's the thing. If you are someone that is on the fence about getting Disney Plus and you're thinking, ooh, Star Wars, the Clone Wars, this may be the thing that tips me over to get uh, the I Disney Plus. I mean, it should Plus. absolutely be. <laughs> I mean... Maybe, honestly, if you didn't if you didn't jump with Mandalorian and you didn't get on board when the Mandalorian came out and everybody going crazy for that, I don't think that this is the thing that's going to, you know, make you go over that final hurdle. Uh, honestly, I mean, if you are a big Clone Wars fan, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Get it. 
But if you're just like, oh, I kind of want to see what Disney offers up. Oh yeah, Clone Wars. I remember that. It was pretty good. I don't I don't think that I don't think I think Mandalorian is much better of a Star Wars offering as an original show from this Disney Plus series than Clone Wars is. That being said, I've enjoyed all the episodes. I sit there and watch them and I think about them. Um, but right now they're just, it looks like you gave it what, Ashley, this, this one, three slices. I give, this a, I give this a three out of five and, and yes, I have a lot of issues and I come into it with a lot of baggage. Um, but I, I do love this show a lot and the TV shows more consistently than the films give mm -hmm. me what I'm looking for, for the star Wars universe. So it is a three out of five and I do feel some kind of way about it, but it is truly, it is still so much better than I could have ever imagined a kid Star Wars show being. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely that. Definitely that. Now I, the biggest drawback for me is I didn't watch that uh, Netflix season. Uh, so ah, there is a little, there's a bit of a loss there because it's like, okay, what's going on? Let me catch up and try to figure out, you know, what's going on there. Um, so I don't know. It, it's fine. It's good. I'm glad that Disney is offering plenty of Star Wars stuff for Star Wars fans while we wait for the, you know, more stuff to come. Um, but I just, yeah, I, I think three, three and a half seems to be about right for the entire series so far. Now, I'm really hoping the final four are going to blow our minds. Which uh, that has happened with uh, Clone Wars in the past. So yeah, by yeah. the end of the season, Steve and I might be up to a 10 out of five. Who knows? That might, might be. We'll find out in about a month. All right. That it wraps it up for the reviews. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Yes, there are plenty of comics for you to review. The unfortunate thing is you're not going to be able to get those physical copies. You're going to need to go over to comicsology.com and pick up comics this week. There are plenty, some of them going into the adult territory, some of them being uh, this week on the Dueling Review. Matthew and I are going to review a kid's comic uh, yeah. targeted towards like young, young, like six, seven year old uh, readers, in my opinion. Well, we are mentally nine. Well, so it's still below us. No, just kidding. Uh, but we're going to do that. And listen, you can listen live to our recording uh, and discussion of this week's Dueling Review title by joining us over on our Discord channel, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time, where we pipe in this audio and we do it live and we talk with all the cool people. And you could be one of those cool people to find out more at patreon.com slash major spoilers. So finally, some feedback uh, to one of our previous episodes. I kind of figured this was coming in because I did not talk about it when we were talking about uh, the last week, the auction of every DC comic ever with uh, mm -hmm. Ian Levine. Uh, Rob who is one of the writers, Robert, who's one of the writers over at Majorspoilers.com. He's also a big Doctor Who fan, and he is also uh, writing a bunch of the um, um, Brigadier's stories. He's got several books that he's written about the adventures of the Brigadier. Uh, he says, Stephen, listen with interest to the story about Ian Levine's collection of DC comics being sold. He's a huge Doctor Who fan. He was buying copies of episodes from the BBC in the 1970s. He was making big money producing music back then and became an unofficial continuity advisor to the production team during the 80s before falling out with the last classic era producer, John Nathan Turner. Ian's also involved in finding missing, missing episodes of black and white Doctor Who. Figures range to around 20 episodes, though there is some dispute, as there often is with Ian, who can be incredibly strident in his opinion. So there you go. That is from Rob. Just a little bit of uh, additional stuff. I didn't get into the Doctor Who stuff because I, that, for the point of the discussion, I, I didn't think it was there. But I knew some Doctor Who fans might have perked their ears up. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't they announce, Matthew, that they are doing the uh, Marco Polo or the Genghis Khan adventure um, and animating that now completely? I thought I saw something from BBC saying that that's what they were doing, like, in the next week or two. Did you see well, anything I about that? Well, I know that they have been doing those because last last year they just released... Oh God! Now I can't even remember. I know the year before that they did the 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 second Doctor's first serial, mm -hmm. 
And then they did the second serial. They actually threw in some interesting Easter eggs, uh, time travel. But yeah, Marco Polo is entirely missing. So I didn't know that they were animating it, but I would not be surprised because honestly, I think the plan is to animate all of the missing episodes. Okay. And using the audio from those, right? Right. The audio exists and uh, what they call telesnaps. Right. Um, there was actually a person whose job was to take a picture every four or five seconds of a BBC production so that they had a visual record of it. Uh, so you can actually see the archived images. You can't see any motion, but for many of those episodes, the visuals still exist so they can, you know, approximate using animation what it is that they can do. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, let's see. Missing Adventures, the Faceless Ones to be animated in 2020. Maybe this is the one that they're talking about, the the newest one that they're doing. I don't see a release date on this one, but uh, the one before that was the... Uh, now I just was on that page and I lost it. Um, it Marco Polo was a first Doctor serial. The Faceless Ones is a second Doctor serial. Yeah. And it is not entirely lost. I think two episodes of the faceless ones still exist. I know the first episode of the faceless ones does exist. Okay, cool. So, well, uh, I'm sure Rob will write us back if we're wrong on that and keep us up to date. So if you have oh, any I'm questions, if you would like to contribute to the major spoilers con, uh, podcast, you can send us an email at podcast at major or drop us an, uh, a phone. One of them phone emails, seven, eight, five, seven, two, seven, 1939. That's the major spoilers hotline. All right. It has been, uh, what, a year since we talked about Tintin? Last time we, like we, we were talking about Tintin, he had just discovered the map to Red Rackham's treasure. And, of course, this means that this installment is all about Tintin and the Captain Haddock and uh, the Johnson and Johnson, Johnson, and, Johnson <laughs> and the crazy guy that can't talk. No, Thompson and Thompson is, the, is their name. The crazy guy can talk. He can't hear. That's Professor right. Calculus. Yeah. Their names are Dupont et Dupont. I don't know Dupont what these silly Thompson and Thompsons are that you are talking. Je, je suis Monsieur Boufletet. <laughs> the English names are wild. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think it makes Actually sense read in the them way in the original stuff. language. Yes, I did when I was a tiny French. human. I read this one in English, though. Oh, did you? So what? what is the... So is this... Um, I'm curious. Did you read these books in order or did you read them as you had access to them? No, we just had like a pile of them. We oh, had okay. the, the, the not so racist ones. Um, cause I've worked in several, many comic stores, uh, and several, many of them had several, many of the real troubling covers. Oh, yeah. Tintin in the Congo. Have, yes. Often I was going to say I have very oversized lips mm -hmm. uh, and you can, you can hand wave away a lot of stuff in Tintin as, sort of a reflection of its time and not as harmful as it might seem by modern standards. And then there's a lot of it where you're just like, this is pretty unforgivable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the Congo came out in 1930 and I think even then it was starting not, to not be... awesome. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, this is the first one that I remember because I vividly remember this story when I was a kid. Uh, I basically grew up in the the town from Green Acres, so mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. grandfather. That set would, is like a half an hour, or the where they shot the outside of that's like a half hour from where I live. <laughs> there you go. My grandfather used to go and get his hair cut every Saturday, and he would go to the same barber shop. And I remember going with him and reading. I think it was Boy's Life or something, but they had little just three panels at a time 
serialized throughout these issues of Red Rackham's Treasure. And I vividly remember seeing the uh, underground or the underwater scenes mm -hmm. with uh, Professor Calculus's shark ship and it getting caught in the wires and being totally, totally upset that I couldn't find the resolution of how Tintin didn't do it. And for years, uh, part of my brain was certain Tintin died. <laughs> Tintin drowned in a shark ship and Professor Calculus was like, what? A corpse? No. That is well, not what happened. Well, now you get to find out how he actually escaped. And I, you know, this was originally printed uh, one page at a time, right? In the newspapers. Mm -hmm. um, and so my big complaint from the last time was that every so often you'd end up with a page that was just a recap. Half the page mm -hmm. was a recap of what happened before and how much I hated that in, in the, uh, was it the unicorn issue, issue? This one, they did not do that as much, which I appreciated more, even though there was some short recaps here and there. Recappiness, I yeah. did appreciate that a lot more. And then going back into the uh, areas of problems with Tintin, I was very surprised that this one refrained from a lot of super troubling racism, which they could have done, but they did not. Well, and this is 1943. So, you know, it's, it's coming out uh, of Belgium. It's a world at war. I wonder if some of that stuff was, you know, uh, things could have been in there, but they avoided it for something that was more entirely escapism. You know, we're going to have this, this plot and we're going to have the little mystery underneath it. And Captain Haddock is going to talk about bilious billions of barnacles. I don't even know, man. Every word out of his mouth, I'm just like, all I hear is <laughs> Alan Hale. You I'm hear just... Alan Hale? Who do you hear, Rodrigo? When we get to Captain uh, Haddock. Who do I hear? Um, like, uh, it's like, uh, oh, I know. Uh, it's, uh, John Goodman. John Goodman. Mm. Okay. I can, yeah, I can see that. Uh, Andy Serkis did uh, Captain Haddock in the uh, animated movie, the 3D animated movie. Uh, that movie is really good. I it think. is. It actually is. I'm, I, when I sat down and watched it, cause I was like, oh, this is going to be horrible. You know, it didn't, I mean, the, the animation looked cool. But then I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I don't know if this is going to be a good story. And then I finally sat down and watched it. And really, this Red Rackham's Treasure is kind of the last little bit of, mm -hmm. of especially the part where they go back to the uh, Haddock estate is the last part of the movie. Um, but uh, yeah, this I believe the that movie, movie really was good. written by Stephen Moffat. It, yes, I believe you are correct. Um, screenplay by Stephen Moffat, Edgar Wright, and Joe hey. Cornish. So directed mm -hmm. by Steven Spielberg. And uh, Thompson and Thompson, played by uh, Simon Pegg, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm correct in, in remembering, is is uh, no, I believe it was that is Simon Pegg and Nick Frost picture. did Thompson and Thompson. Into so I'm curious, uh, and, and Rodrigo, I'm curious. Did you ever read Tintin in Spanish? Uh, yeah, and yeah, so I was I was familiar with Tintin from. Uh, I mean, my grandma liked Tintin, so I, I we had some Tintin stuff lying around the house. Okay, and so what is it, and I guess what is the transition then, because Ashley is all aghast at the English translation <laughs> of her favorite police duo. <laughs> what, what happens when you go from a uh, Spanish version of Tintin to English version of Tintin? Is it a big change, or do the visuals support more of the story than the words ever do? Well, I'm not really sure, because I was never really into Tintin, um, so I don't, I, I didn't read enough of it to, to really latch on to anything. Um, Tintin has a lot of like, 
you know, high seas adventure and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. is uh, generally lacking in like dinosaurs or robots. <laughs> so I, I tended to, to go after some of the other stuff that we had lying around the house, like Turok. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then also another one of your grandma's favorites. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of. Well, those, I want those cereal early, were coming out. You know? is amazing. When uh, when Tintin goes to space, Rodrigo will have his ears all perked up and be ready yeah. to talk. Ashley, what is what is your uh, what is your impression going from French into English in, in reading Tintin? Besides the Thompson Thompson, uh, it's just it's funny to see the names in different languages. I never understand that in any language. Like that's a weird thing that we do in this world. I don't understand why. I don't understand why we don't just call Mexico Mexico or we don't call Germany Deutschland. Like, and I don't understand why sometimes um, we change the names. Like you can figure out names. It's not that difficult. And if you can't figure it out, if you're not familiar, you'll just make it up in your head. I didn't know how to say Hermione when I was a little kid. And oh yeah, you just, you just make it up in your brain. And then, you know, eventually you learn Hermione. the correct pronunciation. And yeah, that was what I thought for a F- long time. Funny, like funny Hermione thing. Munster. Yeah, funny thing that uh, I was in my 30s when uh, my uh, cubicle mate and I got into a very long discussion on how to pronounce her name. So, yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, I wasn't on the up and up with my Winter's Tale by that point. So I wasn't familiar with the character Hermione, who she's <laughs> named after. Um, the names, I mean, they're fine. Like they do. A, they do a fine job. Um, I wish I'd had the foresight. I should have read a couple of the pages in French and then seen if the English translation oh, yeah. was any good. Because yeah. when I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire, we watched it with English subtitles, which I don't like doing because I go... Well, I wouldn't have translated it that way. Mm-hmm. And that movie was definitely translated for tone and mood instead of context, which hurts me on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, localization is is its own thing, right? Besides Absolutely. translation, localization is important. Right now, I'm playing a game uh, in which you play a Japanese high school student going to high school in Tokyo. And it's I'm playing it in English, but they throw in all these things. It's like because uh, American, because Americans are so into Japan, they they actually go the other way around. And you know, whereas it would be fine for somebody to be like, ah, yes, Mashida, bring me that. They have to say, ah, Mashida kun, mm-hmm. bring me that. You know, it's like they they throw these things in to uh, based on the audience and possibly a Spanish translation, they wouldn't add those things because a lot of places in Latin America aren't as big into Japanese culture as Americans are. So things are kept, things are thrown out, things are changed, like the famous uh, like donuts from Pokemon, right? Where they like bring out these like rice cakes mm-hmm. and Brock is like, oh, donuts, I love them. <laughs> those are on things, fun, man, knock it off. Yeah, Sailor Moon like does that happen. too, where uh, she has those buns on her head and in the Japanese translation, um, tuxedo mask calls her bun head, but in the English translation, he calls her meatball head. Right. Yeah. Right. Weird. Well, I, I mean, that, that is a thing that comes up and, you know, if you're reading something, uh, that's been subtitled as well, you kind of get the same sort of thing. I'm always remembered. Uh, there's a, a recurring line in one of my favorite super sentai, Hade Nukize or Nikuze, which translates roughly to let's wreck things or let's make, you know, let's make things up. But uh, I kept trying to watch one and couldn't finish it because the translator kept playing and translating that as let's F them up. I just think it always makes me anxious um, because when I engage with media that I have no concept of the language of, 
Mm-hmm. I go, I just hope they did this kind of okay. Like watching Parasite, mm-hmm. like I, I don't speak any Korean. All the Korean I know comes from Kim's Convenience. Right. So it's mostly just like uh, Ama and Ajima, and those which are both names for a type of woman. So, you know, I watch Parasite and I go, I mean, I hope that's what they said. Who knows? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, that, that comes up in this story too, a couple of times where you're like, this moment that we're seeing on screen with the English stuff, I'm kind of wondering. Oh, I am what sure. It was in French. I am sure that there are puns that we are missing in the yeah, translation. Sure, almost and, you know, certainly. The shark well, that's I colored mean, like a whale getting drunk off of Haddock's booze. I'm like, I feel like there's something there that I'm not getting contextually. I mean, just there's there's a character who is entirely based on the like vaudeville shtick of somebody who can't hear, right? So like, literally, all of those jokes have to be completely different in English mm-hmm. because. Things that rhyme with whatever somebody's saying in French are not going to rhyme in English. So that character is has to like all of his dialogue has to be completely made up by the translator. Interestingly, Dr. Calculus, his visual look is inspired by a scientist by the name of Auguste Picard. Uh, Yeah. And also uh, I'm reading uh, the Wikipedia page uh, in this talks about again, Wikipedia is just a good source to kind of get a, a broad overview. Yeah, get started. Yeah, but it's saying that Red Rackham's treasure has been cited as one of the most important installments in the series. Would you agree would on agree that? that? Really? I would How come? absolutely agree Because of that. the introduction of Dr. Calculus? Partly because of the introduction of Dr. Calculus, and partly because, uh, for me, and we've been, uh, I, what are we, four or five in now? Yeah, something like that. I don't yeah. think I've read all of the Tintin, but I've no. read big chunks of Tintin. I've read it in hunks and bits. And as we go through it chronologically, it feels like this is the point where all of the pieces are in place. This is the point, and maybe part of that is because my introduction to Tintin when I was five was this, but this is really the point where it feels like the early installment weirdness is out of the way the introduction of new characters and the, oh, here's another gag. Is this going to stick? No, it's not. Okay, but this one totally is. All that's out of the way, and we've really got an established cast, and everybody Mm -hmm. has their place. Everybody has their thing that they do. Uh, Sadly, in my head, Tintin talks like Doug Funny, and I blame Disney for that. (laughs) But as I go through this, I feel like this is really... This is your next generation season three. This is right after Worf joins Deep Space Nine. This is something that may not relate to Star Trek as well, but, you know, metaphorically fits the theming. Uh, Insert your own answer where something has been around for a while, but this is where it really starts firing on all cylinders. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Uh, And I think uh, I I really think Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure together make one of the more exciting stories. And maybe that's why it was turned into uh, the Tintin mm-hmm. animated uh, 3D movie. I believe you mean Racham de Rouge. Well, I don't care. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I would agree that we do get some like really super solid stories where when we did, um, what was it? The Cigars of the, or no, the um, Cigars the of the Pharaohs. Cigar, of the, Cigar Pharaoh. of the Pharaohs, yeah. That one seemed like, let's go from crazy uh, shtick to another crazy little gag and just do that for the whole book. And so I was kind of like, eh, okay. This one kind yeah, this of is... go ahead, one, Steven. I was going to say this one kind of did that when it's like, hey, we're going to go uh, get the uh, sharks drunk, or hey, now the monkeys have guns, little bits. But overall, this was a much more streamlined. Let's tell the story. We've got our readers hooked every day in the newspaper, and now we can just tell this story straightforward. Uh, 
I was going to say that I think this kind of transcends the idea of being a strip and mm. it's telling mm-hmm. a larger story the way that some of the earlier issues you can feel mm-hmm. the serialized publishing nature of the first time Tintin was hitting the world. Yeah. And I yeah. think we see that a lot, too, with a lot of comic strips. I mean, we see that a lot with Calvin and Hobbes, how it starts out as daily gags. Right. And then as Calvin and Hobbes progresses, we start to get storylines that might take place for the entire week or the same way with uh, the Peanuts, which, you know, Peanuts mm-hmm. is Peanuts. But I think we see that a lot. And a Gasoline Alley is probably a great example of a comic strip that requires that you kind of grow and age with the characters. Um, but, yeah, this is one that's just so, so well streamlined from something that, you know, and we've read webcomic uh, to trade paperback stories before and we've seen how poorly that can be done and we've done uh, just straight up newspaper strips before and seen how that can be done. So I think this is a really good, good way of telling the story in this way. It just works out really, really well. Is there anything that you guys didn't like in this? I mean, besides the poor translation of police officers. I didn't say it was poor. I just said it was weird. The problem is, no matter whether, whatever language I'm speaking, those H's are very ha. And that, you know, that's just a thing for me. I feel like the, the only thing that I didn't like, for me anyway, was, and I don't usually say this, the ending felt like it wasn't long enough. I wanted a little more of this because we spent a lot of time looking for the treasure and calculus going, no, it's clearly West. We need to go West. And then finally they, you know, figured out what was going on and they returned to Marlon Spike Manor, which by the way is a wonderful Mm -hmm. in-joke. Carl is laughing right now about Marlon Spike. But when you get to the point where, oh my gosh, they found the treasure, hooray, and then Final page. Bye. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for and so me, I am. There's no denouement to be had in this book, right? For sure. right. No. You find you find the treasure. You make a joke at the deaf person's expense, and you move on. Well, so at least in Secret of the Unicorn, it was the setup for hey, here's what's coming next. I don't know enough, and maybe one of our Belgium uh, listeners can can write to us and let us know. I don't know what the state of the newspapers were in nazi-occupied belgium at this time of world war ii because this ran for eight months february to september of 1943 this is right. middle of german occupation i don't well, know, I know if there was the a next gap chapter is the one that did have a gap because it was canceled uh, Be- the next story started in seven crystal balls and until 48 well the, yeah yeah so the the seven crystal balls is the next one it uh, began in December of 43. So maybe there was going to be this break and he had to wrap it up. It was actually canceled. Herge was blacklisted. Uh, uh, okay. They called him a collaborator. Okay. And then it's like, there was like a two year space. So the beginning of seven crystal balls, then there was a big gap and then it ended, uh, I think it ended 46 to 48. Okay. Was when right. that actually finally finished up. Okay. So what? something was, something's going on. So maybe that's why they have to wrap up the story in the way that they did. What's the name of the dinosaur from Atomic Robo? The stupid dinosaur nemesis. Like, I don't mean stupid. Dr. Like, dinosaur? Yeah, yeah Dr. Dinosaur. Because he's dumb. Um, <laughs> Dr. Calculus, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Not too many doctors. Very mm-hmm. much reminded me of Dr. Dinosaur. And it's probably because we very, well, very recently, a few months ago, read that special with him in it. But the whole time I was like, oh, man, it's so funny to read a zeitgeist that something comes out of in this way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Rodrigo, you're a big fan of Dr. Dinosaur. Would you like to compare and contrast? Support <laughs> Ashley's argument or not? Would you like well, to be... Uh... I mean, Dr. Dinosaur is meant to be... Uh, uh, okay, so here's how here's how Dr. Dinosaur and uh, Dr. Calculus or Professor Calculus or whatever are similar is that they are usually there to facilitate the story, right? So yeah. calculus's inventions and mishaps tend to move the story forward. Dr. Dinosaur is a foil to Atomic Robo, but uh, he performs a very important sort of like lubrication to the story in that uh, he will, his technology works outside of the bounds of science, like the, the way that Dr. Dinosaur's technology works shouldn't work. And then Robo gets to get mad at him for the fact that it doesn't work, even though actually, technically, Robo's technology also doesn't work like it should in the real world. It's, you know, all of these are pseudoscientific concepts. Um, but that way, it allows you to hang a lampshade on the fact that, hey, you know, we've had a lot of fun here, but this is a comic book. And it could we <laughs> could be more ridiculous. We could be Dr. Dinosaur. Yeah. Right. So now, is, is this the point where Snowy stops talking? so much i think so because i mean Snowy, he doesn't really has, talk in here he has one line because tintin is talking to him and he's like oh yeah i'll totally show you yeah i mean uh, i think the first tintin story i ever read Snowy didn't talk at all so we're definitely going in that direction yeah because i i don't remember him are you talking are you a pro snowy talking or or anti-snowy talking matthew I feel like it's not consistent within the rules of the universe. Mm. Um, I don't have a problem with uh, Snowy maybe breaking the fourth wall or the readers being aware of Snowy having an internal monologue. You know, us being able to, you know, kind of like Hobbes. If we're aware of what Snowy is saying, if we're aware of what, you know, Stewie Griffin is saying, but it's not necessarily... Uh, for lack of a better term, diegetic to the story, that's one thing. But if he's talking to Tintin and saying, hey, Tintin, come on over here and look, I totally found this robot fish. You know, that to me feels like it kind of undermines what in a lot of ways is just a very straightforward kind of 30s adventure story. Yeah, I like adventure stories. Snowy's actually t I think Snowy talks to him in the boat too when they're underwater. He's, he's talking and Snowy's like, yeah, that sure is a lot so, of water. I'm a dog. I hate water. I think what we have to do is go back and look at all the instances where Snowy is talking. And is Snowy mm -hmm. only talking when Tintin is around? Or oh. is Snowy talking when other people are around? Because maybe Tintin he's has crazy. cracked his head on the, on the desk one too many times. <laughs> <laughs> or he or has a super Tintin active imagination and he's using uh, Snowy like... I'm sure intern Brago talks to you, Ashley, just as uh, Mojo the cat talks to us. Oh my and gosh, my yes. wife hates it when I when I talk for Mojo, but that's mm -hmm. the way the cat talks. Uh, so maybe that's what it is. Could be. Uh, by the way, I believe that Ashley would prefer that we call him Milu. Yeah, please. Hello, I'm Milu. I'm the, Milu I'm the is, dog. Hello. Milu is also uh, just a very common name for French dogs, which is probably because of this strip. But right. I I knew a hundred dogs who were not all tiny and white by that name think, growing up. Yeah. I think Milou is actually the French word for bark bark. Uh, Could be. Mistaken. All right. Bottom yeah, line is, if you're going to read Red Rackham's Treasure, you need to combine it with The Secret of the Unicorn because those yes. two will combine together for a complete story. And I say this is a really fun Tintin adventure. The 
Uh, awkward moments are kept to a really good minimum between the two books and hardly present at all here. Uh, so this is good, clean fun that I think uh, you can share with your kids and uh, explain to them that it's not fun to make fun of people with uh, a hearing impediment. So there you go. Uh, Matthew, final thoughts from you. Ableism is not funny, but uh, Red Rackham's Treasure is really, really good. And it's not super long. It's like 64 pages. I would perf be perfectly fine handing this to a child. I would say, hey, you know, you talk about comics. Here's some comics for you. This is a very well done comic strip. And I don't feel like there are any major, you know, flat notes or moments that you have to write around. And, you know, there aren't any weird novelty tracks that the Beatles probably shouldn't have put on the side three of the white album. There isn't really anything here that is ever out of place. That is ever a huge false note. And it really feels like, you know, Harry Gay has finally got everything right where he wants it. And now it's just time to get the whole band together and make some music. And it's beautiful. I, I one thing that I will add on to what you were saying, uh, Matthew, is that, um, you can even give this to a young kid because the visuals oh, yeah. speak so much louder than the words do, even though the words do help. But you could read this just without understanding the words that people are saying and still get the gist of what's going on. Yeah, so probably I think that's the a most plus difficult well. words you're going to find in here are Haddock's strange curses. Yeah. Uh, Rodrigo, final thoughts from you. I I will definitely agree that this feels a lot better as part of... Uh, the the unicorn storyline because i remember uh just kind of first off like picking it up and seeing how short it was um and saying like i feel like tintin is always like a thousand million pages long and then when you get into how big the the panels are it's like oh yeah this is why um yeah but it you know to me it felt short it felt like it had filler a lot of the time like I mean, that shark sequence is good. That shark uh, submarine sequence is good, but also accomplishes pretty much nothing since they immediately send Tintin in with a, in a much more exciting uh, sequence with a diving suit. Mm -hmm. um, and it just felt like a lot of the time it was just kind of treading water to get you where you want it to go. So uh, probably as part of a larger reading experience, those moments would have felt less... Uh, less boring or less, uh, or, or like they commanded so much more of the book of of the of your read time. Um, it's enjoyable though. Tintin's a lot of fun, and it's like you know that sort of like good old fashioned boys adventure stuff. So I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. Ashley, we are giving you the final word this week. Mm. Moi, je pense que cette volume c'est le Goldfinger de l'univers de Tintin, et moi j'aime t'aime beaucoup. Et si vous Si vous pouvez me comprenez, me dit que vous m'aimez aussi. Et it's really good. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ashley, for uh, that insight. Uh, Rodrigo, thanks for joining us again this week. And Matthew, as always, it's fun to have you here. And listeners, it's always great when you are here as well. And we are going to continue to produce the Major Spoilers podcast from now into the future to uh, maybe uh, keep you company during these uh, these quiet times when you're not around friends because we consider you our friend. And that's where we're going to wrap it up this issue. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being part of the Major Spoilers experience. 
As always, we love your feedback, so make sure to use the comment section at Major Spoilers to share your thoughts and reactions to the episode. Or even better, send us an email to podcast at Majorspoilers.com. And don't forget, you can support this show and everything we do by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Majorspoilers. As I said, we will be back next week to venture into Harrow County one more time, question yes! mark? Yes! Because we know that you love comics and we do too, and we will talk with you soon. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.